Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Well, we were wondering if that was recorded, and thank goodness it is. As Philip said, it's BC Radio Live on a Wednesday night, early summer, one day after my birthday. That was traumatic, I have to admit. You know, I mean, on most levels, it was okay, no, no, no huge problems, but you know, I can feel those those undertones and those currents beneath me. With me tonight, Philip Wynn is not running the board, so forgive me if I mess something up here. It's the first time I've actually run the board on, on this show. I've done a one or two emergency fill-in board running operations, but this is this is the first one officially on this show. So thank goodness joining me tonight is Blog Critics Executive Editor Lisa McKay. Hello, Lisa. How are you? really good, Eric, and a happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the club, dude. Yeah, I know. You know, I mean, what are the the options, right? You know, you're born on a certain, you're born on a certain date, you know, you you come into the world and, and from that day on, I mean, the clock is ticking, right? This is very true. I mean, you know, there's, there's no way around it. So... Yeah, I'm 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 in the fifties now, so uh it's okay. I'm I'm uh I'm youthful and and whatnot and you know, fifty's the new uh mm, uh I was thinking fifty's the new fifty, but I'm I'm gonna go with fifty's the new uh thirty eight. How's that sound? I like that a lot, because that just puts me in my very early forties. Yeah, yeah, that's what and, I'm thinking. You know, it's all good. And that's a fine place to be, you know? Yeah, I think basically the thing to do is you you just sort of ignore them. The birthdays, right? And, and you do what you do. Be yourself, do your thing, you know, rock your casbah, yep. and, exactly. and, and there you go. All right. Well, with us tonight, and uh, we are we are waiting for the first caller to call in. I, I hope I'm doing everything correctly. That's the only part I'm concerned about is is running those uh, phone calls coming in because I don't want to mess anyone up or leave them hanging or cut them off or do anything silly like that. But uh, assuming all goes well, we have author Troy Johnson, who has written Family Outing, What Happened When I Found Out My Mother Was Gay. Oh, my. That must have been traumatic. <laughs> yes, indeed. So we'll be talking to Troy. And Troy's a busy guy. He's not just the um, the author of that book. He's done lots of other things, including he's the senior editor of Riviera Magazine, he hosted and co-wrote Fox Rocks, a TV show about underground music, for which he won two Emmy Awards. He hosted Out of Left Field, a pregame TV show for the San Diego Padres. Wow, he was a music editor for San Diego City Beat. Now, this is a man after my own heart. Very eclectic interests, wouldn't you say? Definitely eclectic and all media and music. And, yeah, that really does sound like you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think he's younger than I am, though. And... Uh, <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, all the stuff I'm interested in. He's sports, music, he's a writer, cool guy. After that, we have, and this is really funny, uh, uh, Troy's book is funny too, but this one's hilarious, the official Filthy Rick Rich Handbook, How the Other .0001% Lives, and this is really great, by Christopher Tennant, and he will be joining us, and uh 
It's a complete guide for those who have $30 million, and that really is the floor. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you scrape by, if you scrape in on 30 mil, man, you're, you don't really belong in this crowd. But it's a complete guide to the best zip codes, Major Domo versus Butler, the perils of island buying, teach your children swell, why the wealthy swim nude, how to talk polo, and other essentials, including a clip-and-save NDA. So we'll be speaking to Christopher Tennant. Following that, we, are, we take a break from, uh, from authorship, and we will be speaking with Chris Bull, and he is the marketing VP for AirPlay. I believe we talked to an AirPlay person uh, some time ago. I think we talked – I didn't go back and look because uh, I'm lazy. I think we talked to Morgan – Gunther, perhaps, uh, the CEO. We did. I think it was one of the first shows we did. Yeah, it was. Very early on, we were talking yeah. about uh, AirPlay and what they are. And, and basically, it's a transforming television entertainment from a passive to an active experience by delivering live multiplayer TV gaming to viewers via, via mobile devices and the web. So that'll be interesting. They have a new game, and um, and that game is... Uh, let's see, where where did I put that? Big Brother, live TV challenge. So be watching Big Brother and playing along, and uh, we'll we'll be hearing about that. And we'll wrap things up with author, and this guy, wow, he's he's super well-known. I've, I've been reading him for some time now. And he's, uh, again, someone who really gets around, really eclectic, a uh, renaissance man. And that's Ralph Peters, and he has a new book out, Looking for Trouble, Adventures in a Broken World. Ralph Peters, career soldier, controversial strategist, prize-winning, best-selling novelist, erstwhile rock musician, popular columnist, and old-fashioned adventurer. So, wow, that, that's a lot going on there, I would have to say. And uh, yeah, that's pretty exciting. Interesting resumes tonight. Yeah, we really do. All right, and here's the call. Let's check it out. 619, that sounds good. Troy, are you there? That would be me now that I've gone through a few phones to figure out this new fandangled thing they call technology. How you doing, sir? Way to go, man. Yeah, we you know, we didn't want to lose you there because we've been we've been talking you up and your great book and your super cool resume and all the neat stuff. We were saying you're like me, but younger. You're a sports guy, a music guy, you're a writer, you're a you're a Renaissance man. But so you collect just... ceramic ponies too. Oh, you got me, man. How did you know? Good, good, good. I, I thought I was the only one. I was alone and cold. No, no, it's true. Now, I didn't check out Riviera. What's that? You're the editor-in-chief of Riviera. What kind of magazine is that? Well, actually, I think you just gave me a promotion. I'm the senior editor of Riviera Magazine, which is a, you know, a regional glossy monthly in San Diego, kind of the new regional magazine. They've got like 16 regional magazines throughout the United States. They just opened one up in Manhattan, we are taking over the world as we speak. And, Super uh, cool. I cover food, drink, art, and culture. So I eat for free as much as possible. I choke down foie gras whenever I can. And uh, I find the best Tijuana dogs in the city. <laughs> Man, you, you are living large, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, you haven't seen my paycheck yet, but it is a, a, an eclectic uh, collection of things that I do, that's for sure. All right, well, let's talk about the book, Family Outing, What Happened When I Found Out My Mother Was Gay. And I, uh, 
as as is always not always almost always the case i get these things a little late and i i have about 79 things to do but i did look through quite a bit of yours and it's funny it is honest and uh you know you've really put your heart on your sleeve what uh, other than obviously the real life incident what what led you to believe that that you wanted to put all this into a book well you know there's a certain deadpan uh, a tragic lack of sense of humor about, you know, the sexuality issue. Everybody's talking about it. You know, should gay people just stay in the closet with the footwear? Should they come within, you know, 500 yards of children? You know, or should they have a brute just like Mother Hubbard, you know? I mean, it's, it's, uh, so I, I wanted to tell that story from a straight kid who grew up with a gay parent in the Reagan 80s back when it wasn't quite the cool cultural thing that it is now. Sharon Stone hadn't had a steamy sex scene on a couch in a living room floor yet. You know, Ellen wasn't quite the president of the United States of Comedy that she is now. You know, it was a different time. So I just, I thought, you know, someone needs to laugh a little bit about this and tell it the way that it really was. And it turned out to be way more than just having a gay parent. You know, it turned out to be kind of an essay on, you know, sexuality in America itself and, you know, the myriad of choices that we're kind of faced with. You want to be straight, you want to be gay, you want to be bisexual, you want to be George Michael, you know. Just, <laughs> Is so he his much... own category? He's kind of his own category now. I think he's kind of, you know, he's forming his own species as we speak. It's going to, it's going to be a, a good singing species, that's for sure. Yeah, well, you know, he's a songwriter. I mean, maybe he's ambisexual or something like that. Yeah, he's kind of omnisexual. It's like the old Cheech and Chong movie where it's like trisexual. He'd try anything, I think. But. <laughs> yeah. I talked to Tommy Chong just a couple of weeks ago. That was, you want to talk about a cultural, you know, touchstone. That was really an amazing experience. I'm excited yeah, I would have had back. a hard time talk, talking to him because I would have been bowing the entire time. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, well, the end of the line. fortunately, it's always on the phone, you know. Well, let's tell people, you know, how how did all this, kind of, how did it come about? And, and in other words, what was going on in your life, and, and when did this happen that, uh, you know, what's your background, and how, how did you become aware of this rather startling secret? You know, that was the interesting thing. The first chapter of my book is called Tattledyke and Freckle Spawn. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, and that's the kind of humor that I spurt by throughout it, because that's the kind of language that surrounds being the kid of a gay parent, you know. I could have said the heterosexual woman or the homosexual woman who outed my mommy, but that wasn't the way it was, you know. It was the language when your parent is a gay parent, you know, it's pretty charged. It's the, it's the chick with the combat boots down the street, and you have to say, oh, God, that's mommy. You know, so that's why I use that kind of language. But anyways, I was 10 years, I was growing up in Southern California, and my mom had been really close friends with this woman, hated this woman. I wanted to have her removed from the planet if I could somehow. Not dead, just, you know, kind of removed from the planet. And she um, she knocked on the door one day before school. I hadn't seen her in a couple weeks. We were always so close. And, you know, she was really serious. She had that look like your mom just got run over by a reindeer sort of look. And and I thought, oh, my God, mom's dead. You know, she came in. You know, she said, can we talk to you? Yada, yada, yada. She was with her daughter, Frecklespawn. And I didn't like her either. And, um, you know, she said, do you know what a lesbian is? You know, your mom is a lesbian. And, God, you know, life changes really quick from that on moment. That, that morning, my oatmeal tasted a little bit different. Now, where was Dad? 
Oh, dad was, my parents had divorced when I was three, so she was a single mom. You know, she, she was this good family friend, at least I thought. And lo and behold, that morning I come to find out that, you know, she'd been mom's lover since my parents had divorced, like six or seven years um, before. So, yeah, life was a, was a life-changing moment for sure. Wow, wow. Did you Did you talk to dad about this and get his take on it? Well, that was the thing, is that this woman basically dropped five before school. Hello? Troy? Uh-oh. Sounds like a dropped call. It sure does. We have lost Troy. Well, Troy, please do call back in. Um. Hmm. <laughs> All righty. Well, I'm I'm sad about that. We were chatting with that is Troy. Sad. Yeah, what a <laughs> what an experience. Uh, we we have we have a, a new caller, and I'm I'm guessing that's our next caller. Uh, why don't we see? Yep, yeah, we just lost that call completely. All right. Well, uh, Troy, you're welcome to call back in. We we only have a couple more minutes. I'm I'm sorry. We we lost valuable time with you to the to the dropped call aspect, but the book is Family Outing: What Happened When I Found Out My Mother Was Gay, and it is by Troy Johnson, and he is quite a uh, witty and charming fellow, and there is no lack of humor and pathos and real feeling in the book, and it should always be mentioned that Troy really does like his mom. You know, it's 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 not an issue anymore for him. He he wanted to make that very clear. All right, well let's uh, let's check out our next caller, and see if that is, in fact, Christopher. Christopher, Hello. is that you? It is me. Excellent. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm fine, but I'm sad that we lost Troy to a dropped call. Hmm. That is, that is sadness incarnate, wouldn't you say? I would. I would. All right. Well, all this is, we, are, we are with Christopher Tennant, and his book is the official Filthy Rich Handbook, how the other point zero 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 one percent lives, and I'm telling you, it is hilarious. I've been looking through it, and there's all kinds of great graphics. We we have a run through the various sort of archetypal uh, plutocrat types, and there's pictures of them, and and we get descriptions of their outfits and whatnot. And uh, uh, and there's a lot of pretty serious stuff in here too. I mean, it's all tongue in cheek, but I mean, the information certainly is for real. And uh, it's an amazing thing. What what brought all this together? Uh, well, I've been a journalist in New York at various publications for about eight years, and kind of one day got this idea. I mean, there's uh, you know it was ended up kind of rubbing shoulders with a lot of really overprivileged people, as you do on an island this small. Um, everyone's sort of thrown together, uh, and yeah, and I basically got the idea. And my pu- the publisher uh, Workman, they had done the Official preppy handbook in 1980, um, which I don't know if you remember that, but it's oh, a, I sure do. A, a, I do. That was always that was always a, a favorite book of mine, and I loved the format, and it sort of lended itself. It lent itself to a to this kind of subculture that really hadn't been documented. You know, people talk about the rich and everything, but what their lives are actually like on a day to day basis, and who uh, there's a lot of characters. It's not all like Thurston Howell or Paris Hilton. Um, there's a lot of different types, so I basically treated it as a subculture and went from there, and kind of got in way over my head, and there was way too much information, but I, I was, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, ha- I think that I'm pretty happy with the end result. 
Oh, yeah, it's terrific. Like I say, it's really funny. It it, it works as a kind of a send-up, as a, as a parody of of those people and their lifestyle, but there's all kinds of great information in here, too. How did you decide, you know, kind of what you were going to include and, and how to approach it and, and what aspects of, of the lifestyle? And, and also, how did you select the $30 million barrier? I mean, well, that, that seems right. somewhat well, random. That part of the it's actually, that's what the, it is on uh, Wall Street. What Wall Street refers to as high net worth individuals are those. Oh. Thirty million or more in in liquid assets. There's like three tiers, um, and that's the highest one. Because uh, you kind of have to cut it off somewhere. Even though with thirty million you can't really buy a jet um, or anything like that. You can rent one. Um, but uh, yeah, there, I mean, I, I basically wanted it to cover everything, actually, to be a real cradle to grave guide, to go from. So it was any kind of field of human endeavor. I tried to at least made an attempt to try to capture it in a way that was actually informative but also funny and entertaining, um, and then kind of just took out the hacksaw and cut away all the extra stuff that wasn't up to par. All the effluvia. There's twice as much information and lots of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. What's, what's um, accounting for... for um, Inflation. Uh, do we know who the richest person is ever? Did you address that? Ever? Uh, I think it's still. I mean, I've heard people say that it was Rockefeller and stuff like that, but I think it's still. Uh, it would. I guess right now it would be Carlos Slim Helu, the uh, the Mexican telecom guy. But it, it, Bill Gates, I think, still has more money than. But I mean, depending on. I don't know if 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 he's. Uh, if Slim is still uh, above him, but there was a time, at least last year, that he was above him. Um, I'm not. I, I, I'm, I'm, I've heard various claims that oh, Rockefeller had a lot more money than, than, uh, you know, than Gates ever had. But I relative mean, for his time, yeah. Right, I mean, because right. he was just wow. I mean, maybe you know. comparatively, with that, everyone else had so little, but I don't. I think actually, in adjusted dollars, it's still not more. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's a social kind of thing. That the, the difference was just so. The, yeah, there was just a huge gulf appallingly wide. Yeah, I'm just looking through here. Well, one of the things I'm really interested in are your your uh, your archetypes and uh, maybe walk us through a couple of your favorites and uh yeah, there's uh I mean it, it, this was this is where I it's the first chapter and it's actually some of them were out of order but this is actually where I started. Um and this is basically it's 18 different types that we shot them with models and there's call outs kind of and little uh kind of uh, bars on the side explaining some of their habits, where they went to school, who their dad was, what their passions are, et cetera. Um, and that, was a, that started with about 25 and then, and then went down to there. I mean, and it had to account for, you know, the old money types and then also the Hollywood types and the Silicon Valley types. And, and uh, I basically picked one with the most interesting. Some of my favorites is the nerdling. It's sort of the new, uh, you know, the... the Mark Zuckerberg, the, who founded Facebook, is now the youngest billionaire. He's got 1.3 billion. Doesn't that disgust you? 23. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't. I don't know. He he didn't, I guess, invent something new. Um, it's a little bit appalling. I don't know what he seems like. A, he's quite nerdy. I don't think he's in danger of ending up in rehab anytime soon. But um, <laughs> he. So kind of getting, talking to, trying to nail that character down, the nerdling, who's sort of a, 
uh, still kind of immature, didn't really, you know, never graduated from college, was sort of rich overnight, maybe still dating his girlfriend from high school. Um, Social issues, ugh. Yeah. And then One can imagine, you know, the combination of that kind of overwhelming amount of money with, with the kind of awkwardness that's likely there. Oh, man. Yeah, and the overcompensating for being kind of a, a, a picked on your entire life. Um you know, sort of being a, being a social outcast, and then all of a sudden saying, "Wait a second, I'm richer than all these." I mean, that happens to to most of the guys in the Sports 400 anyway. You have to have. There's rarely are they are they kind of well adjusted, you know, alpha males. They're kind of there's something. They're either too short or too fat or too kind of. There's a, there's usually some geekiness that goes with because there's a lot of you know you have to be very smart and it's a lot of hard work. Um, but I would think it would be particularly awkward if you were that young. And everyone, you've got all these kind of, you know, people who are three times your age kissing up to you everywhere you go. Right, <laughs> right. That's a really good point. I, I think about that a lot because, you know, it's kind of the, um, it's the Elvis, you know, yeah. uh, syndrome. And, it's, you know, it affects presidents. I mean, it, it's actually really an important you know, uh, sociological structure where, you know, you just don't have anyone to tell you no, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, that happens so often. And people, but there's guys that are, you know, older than your parents who are your, you know, the, the people who actually have been brought in to run Facebook and all the investors and stuff are, you know, they're, they're older than, you know, these are guys who've been working in either Silicon Valley or Wall Street. Real own. business guys. Yeah, have MBAs or, you know, these sort of established guys. And this kid who's 23 strolls in and is like, all right, this is what I want. <laughs> you know, this is how I want it done. And can hire and fire people. It's it's very, uh, very richy rich. And give me another Jolt Cola. <laughs> right. Does that still exist? I don't even know. <laughs> I think it does, actually. They brought it back. Um so there's the, though that uh, that's one of them. I mean, there's a sort of wastrel. Well, I, in some of the pages, as you'll see, I I, I did some old school and new school. There's yeah, a, yeah. You kind of go back and forth between. Yeah, the two. And some, some of them have pairs and some of them don't. There were ones that have kind of an analog from another time. From, right. There's the I call them the dinosaur. <laughs> I love that. The old. You know, kind of the Steve Forbes, Ron Lauder. These are guys that who you know they're probably one generation. Uh, their parents, or their, usually their, their fathers typically, or in the case of, uh, of Ron Lauder, his mother, Estee Lauder, were, you know, these hard scrabble immigrants in a lot of cases who kind of came over and built these empires on sheer will. And then their sons are, kind of became almost British as they, as they grew up and were absorbed into often into, you know, uh, Manhattan society and kind of refined art collecting uh connoisseurs of of the uh of you know of the good life and have you know yachts and are very refined and kind of uh upset with the, with the ways that the, the world have changed i mean for, if you've ever seen steve forbes his father you know was like a a total maniac oh he's forbes. nuts uh, man he's yeah. just total motorcycle riding freak in nature freak yeah and then his son is this sort of classical conservative scholar who, you know, studies abroad and is very kind of serious and, um, you know, wants to, wants to flat tax. Yeah, he's a flat taxer, man. <laughs> right. he, he, didn't, he didn't get his dad's looks either, I noticed. No, no, he's a very awkward-looking dude. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't look quite finished. Like, man, that guy didn't bake long enough. Yeah, sort of like a bag of, bag of potatoes. 
Um, they, and that would be juxtaposed against these, uh, you know, the kind of Brandon Davis types. I don't know if you've seen him running around. Oh yeah, my wife. My wife writes our our uh, celebrity right site, and so yeah. All these new, you know, these new guys that are often actually uh, from old money families, but have been kind of sucked into the celebrity culture and realize, hey, wait a second, I'm not, I'm a professional kiteboarder. I might as well go to Hollywood and start, you know, sleeping with Lindsay <laughs> Professional <Lohan>. kiteboarder. <laughs> that's what, that, that's what uh, Stavros Niarchos is. And his grandfather was, of course, was also Stavros Niarchos, who was a mate, you know, the Ario Nassus's chief, chief shipping partner. And he was kind of an international jet set uh, playboy, but kind of a classy guy. That, you know, right. Yachts and Jess and his kid, I mean, his grandson is a professional kiteboarder who, you know, runs around in like a hoodie sweatshirt smoking dope all day. Um, but so I, that's the wastrel. It's it's so interesting the the generational changes and what happens. You know, who, who makes the big money? You know, that that the first generation that makes the big bucks. You know, how did that happen? Usually involves you know hard work and and a nose to the grindstone and and. You know, may or may not have a a lot of, of personal charisma. Usually does because to make it, you know, out of nothing, you you got to put so many different things together. Plus, right. get lucky, you know. And then the generations after that, it's a, like look at the Gettys. How fascinating, you know, that family is. They've had. It's like the, you know, the, in the opening chapter of the book, I talk about, you know, you maybe maybe you started out, maybe you just made your fortune, or maybe you have. You know, your your great great grandfather was a tin bean mogul, and you have the tragic family history to prove it. Because it's really true. If you look at, I mean, the Gettys, they were kidnapping. God, it's awful. Half of them are heroin addicts, and the whole they're just like devastation. Birth like, defects. Yeah. Lots of weird stuff. The grandfather had a payphone at his house, and he made everybody <laughs> made everybody use, <laughs> use the payphone. Yeah, and he you know, that's the, the one archetype you don't see a whole lot of these days is the classic miser, you know. Remember, what was, what's the woman, the Hattie? Uh, oh, right, the old the Wall Street lady, the crazy... Right, who, who, whose son Hattie or... Green or something? Yes, whose son or daughter or child, whatever, you know, died because she wouldn't take him to the hospital or something. Right. Just absurd. Well, he's scared. But Warren Buffett's, you know, he's still representing. He's trying to... He's, uh, he just cut his granddaughter out of, her, out of, out of their will um, what did she do? She spoke to actually my friend Jamie Johnson made this movie called uh, The One Percent. Um, he's a John, he's from the Johnson and Johnson fortune, and he found right. this girl, this Buffett girl, who's a nanny for some rich family in L.A. And huh. he granddad pays her school fees, and I don't even know if she has an allowance, but she has actually a relationship with him. But she's a nanny, a nanny for like an upper middle class family in LA, which is kind of hysterical. So he finds her, and she's this dreadlocked Rasta chick doing like chants in her house. She's very sweet. Um, but after he interviews her, they then go back for a second filming, and she reads this letter that she got from Warren Buffett when he found out that she had spoken uh, uh, to a documentary film crew and said, "You are, I'm hereby disowning you. You are not part of my family. Do not expect any." Like, you have betrayed my trust, blah, blah, blah. And this is the same time, this is the same week that he gave all that money to the Gates Foundation. Good Lord. Yeah. But he's, okay. there, he's notori- oh, like a notorious cheapskate. That, and it, that's the speculator is, sort of the, is one of the archetypes that um, has shades of Buffett 
kind of guys that don't really care about money. They really just care about the game. Right. It's the, not. It's a, the abstract. It's yeah. I mean, he lives in Nebraska. He drives a. I think he's how he lives in a hundred and forty-six thousand dollar house in Lincoln, Nebraska, and doesn't have servants and has like. You know, he's got a private jet now, but that's because it's cheaper than flying commercial all the time. Man, you want to talk about a freak? <laughs> yeah. Give me, got, give me the wastrel any day over that nonsense. Yeah, you know? I mean he's got, what, what is it? He's, he's got all. He drives a, he drives like a Subaru. He's a total weirdo. Um, I don't like, I don't like abstemious. You know, live a little. No, there's nothing, there's nothing kind of more off-putting than a cheap billionaire. Really, I, I gotta <laughs> agree with that. You know, have I a mean, fun. you don't, right. yeah, I mean, you don't have to go crazy. You don't have to flaunt it and throw in everyone's face. But you know, live a little. You know, share a little. Don't cut off the granddaughter. No. Man. All right. Well, moving on from there, then you have all the uh, – I, I love this, the title, Common Rogues and Remoras. I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about those who, who latch on to the uh, oh, yeah. the primary yeah. sources there. And it's very funny. As, as since the book has come out and, like, meeting more people and just kind of traveling around this summer and sort of saying – there was a guy that I was talking to that uh, actually used to date Joan Collins. He dated Joan Collins for 15 years. Oh my! Um, but isn't isn't gay apparently? But I but I think he is. Shocking. But, um, he started reading. He was reading that out loud, and uh, actually got a good chuckle. There's one that's the uh, the the Power Walker, who's the kind of gay man. Who there are so I mean, it, there's it's probably it's kind of native to a few towns or a few cities. But the the kind of power the the uh, usually closeted gay man who kind of befriends bored socialites and other rich women and kind of is their confidant and takes them around and, you know, goes, walks them basically into parties is where the term originates. Um, ah, I but, see. But the power did, walker, yeah. Yeah, Nancy Reagan had, the, there's a, a faint, uh, what was his name, Jerry, Jerry something. He was a, he, Jerry, she had Jerry one of those. <laughs> Jerry Zipkin was the original, it was actually coined, the term was coined by Women's Wear Daily to describe this man named Jerry Zipkin, who was Nancy Reagan's best friend. And because Ron Reagan never wanted to go to anything, and yet, especially this older generation, these guys are like, I'm not going to go and sit at a black tie dinner and listen to you gab. Like, you go and take the, take the fruitcake with you. <laughs> right. You'll be safe, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't have to exactly. worry about you. I don't you. have to worry about you. Um, <laughs> and so the power walker is the guy that has sort of insinuated itself into the, this uh, some of the, you know the real upper upper tier. Um, you know Dominic Dunn was has been called a Walker. Bob Colicello. There's a whole and there's a whole another actually younger generation in New York and in like Palm Beach. Um, it's not a bad gig. All you have to do is sort of be charming and no, hang not out. at all. You're, especially if you're if the girls are if you're actually having a good time. It's just kind of you know I think you could be a little bit demeaning sometimes when you realize wait a second you're a kept like a man. Teacher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I suppose in some ways they're the descendants of uh, like Oscar Wilde or something, you know. Exactly. exactly. Witty and charming and flamboyant and. They sing for their supper and they sort of right biting remarks. Yes, totally. Gosh, Christopher, what a pleasure talking with you, and what a super book. I I'm, I'm, I see it's doing quite well, and congratulations on yeah, that. I think I it's very. I think it's really well done. It's very funny. And it's very informative, man, because, man, I aspire. I aspire at least to that 30 million level. All right. All right. I mean, you know, I'm a, little, I'm a little old, but uh, I, I, haven't, you know, I haven't given up my hopes and dreams. So I, 
that's going to be my guide. So <laughs> congratulations on it, and Thank and you very much. really enjoyed talking with you, and you uh, and and you know, continued success with uh, with everything you have going on. And uh, hope to talk you know, to you again soon. People can get the book at you know, all the usual places, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, it's all, and, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders. And then there's also I have a website, uh, filthyrichhandbook.com, that has excerpts um, that they can, they can look at. Perfect. I we always want to refer people. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll go back, I'll go back and put that in um, uh, to the, uh, the site of the show. We'll put in cool. the link to your site. So, yeah, definitely always want to refer people to that. But I got to move on because we've yes. we've had uh, poor Chris Bull sitting here, so we're going to yes, bring him in. It. Thanks, Christopher. Thanks a lot, man. Have a great night. You too. So we're going from rich Christopher to poor Chris. <laughs> well, Apparently at least the guy who the writes about the guy who <laughs> writes about the rich. I don't know if he is, you know. Right. You caught me off guard. I was heading over to the uh, that website to uh, check out the excerpts. Well, I'm telling you, I'm looking at the book as we were talking, and uh, it really is funny, and it uh, it is. Uh, you can you can clearly see Lisa said she remembered you can clearly see the heritage of the the preppy handbook in in a lot of the design and you know they, there's there's examples of each of these archetypes you see in the person and there's lines explaining all their you know attributes and whatnot it's really good it's funny and uh, I I, mean, I think you tell from his his personality probably how you know how it comes through so sure. you are the airplay guy we were just realizing that we talked uh, I, I we didn't have time to go back and look uh or i didn't have time to go back and look but i think we talked to morgan in right. one of our very first shows one of, he was uh, one of the people that got you uh who you got started with huh yeah right back you know i don't know what maybe seven eight months ago now. i think it's probably around uh super bowl Oh, that's yeah, we right. ran a bunch of promotions around you are our absolutely NFL absolutely right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It, yeah. That's exactly what it was. And now you have a new game. Well, for those who, who didn't hear that show, which is, you know, back in <laughs> back in January, why don't you tell us about Airplay and what it's about? And then you got a, a new game you're working on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Airplay is a TV entertainment company. I mean, what we do is we make games that you play while you're watching TV that are connected to the programming that you're watching. So it's really sort of, we call them multiplayer TV games. So you're interacting with what's going on on the screen, and you're playing along with other viewers who are uh, watching from home. You're competing against them, chatting with them, doing all those types of things. So it's really a way to make television more of an engaged, sort of connected experience. Um, and it's been uh, something we've been doing for you know a couple of years now. Like you referenced, you talked to Morgan back during the NFL season. Um, the new game that we have out that we've been out for a couple weeks is um, associated with Big Brother 10. It's the Big Brother Live TV Challenge. Um, so something we've been working on with CBS. And um, the way the game works is, you know, while you're watching the show live, you um, either go to our website, airplay.com, or uh, get the game on your mobile phone um, by texting BB10 uh, to our short code, which is Play TV. And while you're watching, you you answer polls, you answer, you make predictions about what's going to happen in the show, um, you chat with other users about what their thoughts are, um, and certainly, you know, with this game, you know, the chat feature is a lot more popular than in some of our others because people just love kind of dishing on, uh, on on people they they don't like or really kind of um, you know fighting for the people they do like. So it's a pretty engaging experience. 
Well, it's a little bit softer experience in terms of, you know, I mean, if people are following a game, you know, the sport, you're, you're typically going to have really serious people who are into that sport. Man, they don't want to mess around with all that nonsense. They right, right. No, it's just, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, when we, when we, when we design game experiences, what it's really about is how do you make someone who's watching TV, how do you improve their TV viewing experience? So they're obviously there in front of the television with that program on because they like it. So our goal is really to build an experience that really sort of works in conjunction with that. So our football game that we've done with the NFL for a couple of years and, and we'll be launching again um, coming up in a few weeks is really interactive. It's highly interactive. You're predicting plays live, etc. So you nailed it right on the head. Is It's a very sort of fast-paced, interactive experience. Um, not as much chat going on, but it, although you know people do like to make friends, etc. And Big Brother's a little bit more casual. It's a little bit more laid back, you know, in terms of the tone of of, of the the speed at which things go, and it really leaves a little bit more space for people to to uh, to chat and um, you know and, and make friends with other viewers. I can think of another word that it is <laughs> okay. compared, compared <laughs> to a major league sport. It's probably a little more contrived. Um, you know, could be. You know, I think that the um, you know, as you dig into the audiences for all these different uh, all these different things, right? The Big Brother Ten is a very passionate, or Big Brother is a very passionate audience um, and a very consistent audience. So the group of people coming back every week, they're really engaged in the show. So um, if you're not a fan of Big Brother Ten, you might not understand all the lingo that's being used and all those things, right? Um, but you know, obviously, these fans are very, very passionate about the show. Um, and uh, and they're starting to become very passionate about our game as well. So now, can you, if people are, go to the site, I mean, can we see, can we get an example of what actually happens, you know, while this stuff is going on? Because I still don't have, I mean, I have a good sense, or a reasonably good yeah, sense of sure. what happens, but but I'm still not, I haven't really nailed what is going on, you know, physically, and what am I looking at, and what am I reading, and what am I clicking on while I'm watching the show. Can, can you either just, uh, walk us through that, or is there something that we could look at? You know, sure. Well, I'll start by I'll start by trying to, uh, to to paint a picture for you, and then we'll see how far uh, how good a job I do. So I'm sure you um, will be exceptional. I'm I'm sure. So basically, you know, on the web, what we do is we provide a flash based game. So when you launch the game from our website, and, and we provide a schedule of the different TV shows that we cover. So you go choose the TV show you want to watch. You select it. You select it on the schedule, and you get into a flash player in which you play along. You know, we have a window on our screen where you make selections, and for Big Brother 10 specifically, we'll ask a lot of you know questions like um, we call them pot polls for the game. But you know, did Jerry make the right decision not using the power of veto? Right, and we'll say yes or no, and then you choose which of those which of those things you have. Um, you also have a window in which you're chatting with other people. You see real-time leaderboards, all those types of things. You know, the easiest way to really see it. I mean, you can get some examples um, and some some views of screenshots on uh, on our website. Um, we run games every day. So today we have a few baseball games that we're playing that that you can play along with live, um, and then we also have Big Brother Ten every night. So tomorrow night, if, if you want to go in and check it out, um, you can go see that there as well. So uh, there's really nothing really quite as good as the real thing in terms of just checking it out and seeing what it's all about. Sure, sure. Um, okay, so. You say you have things every day. What 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 currently uh, is is active? What are you doing? You got the baseball. So I was just playing along with um, New York and Texas in uh, in baseball. 
Uh, we usually do somewhere between two or three baseball games a day. We we cover all the national uh, national baseball games. So if there's something um, on on a you know a national network, uh, we'll be running a game alongside of it. Um, we do do I'm sorry, we do Big Brother. Uh, games three nights a week in conjunction with Big Brother, um, and then we have the NFL season starting along with NFL, and we're doing a bunch of other sports content as well. So, really, you know, I, I um, right now it's it's probably three or four average events a day that that you can go in and join live. Um, as we get into sort of the heart of the TV season, um, that's gonna that's gonna increase dramatically. And depending on what type of show you like to do, um, you'll really get involved. And uh, we actually announced a little while ago. Um, we we were not having announced the launch date of it, but um, that we're partnering with Jeopardy to provide a long play a live play along game with Jeopardy as well. So oh my. imagine uh, imagine a game on home. a game. A game on a game, exactly. Imagine sitting at home and, and you see, you know, you're responding to and answering the same exact questions that people on TV are answering. A game um, on a really to, hard game. <laughs> a game on a really hard game. I mean, the the beauty is that in this case, we actually make it a little bit easier because we provide uh, we provide options for you, whereas the the uh, real contestants who are sweating out on screen actually have to uh, actually have to um, come up with an answer themselves. We we provide a couple options to make it a little easier for people like me. So how many people are participating at any at any given time or in any given um, game? You know, generally, you know, we generally have. I mean, it's it's difficult to say on any specific any specific event, and and uh, we generally don't give numbers um, for those types of things. But you know, we've had hundreds of thousands of people play. I mean, not in a specific event, but since we've launched, um, and we've been growing pretty quickly. So we expect this year is going to be be a pretty big audience for us. And what kind of prizes do people win? So it's different based on the game. Um, for in Big Brother, we give out every week two hundred dollar Amazon gift cards. Um, but the big win on Big Brother is a trip to the live season finale for two. Um, so we that's the way we're doing this. And on um, for NFL, for example, we actually give prizes in every quarter. So if you were to win a quarter um, of an NFL game, you would actually get a, a gift card. So it really sort of pays off the live live component of the gameplay. Interesting. And I'm looking at the your front page, and I'm seeing you have the whole season leader for baseball. Yeah, I mean, we you know the so within our community, I mean, people fight for sort of different uh, different things that they want to have. So you know, we we do leaderboards by every sport. We do leaderboards for every every game that people play. We do leaderboards for sort of the global uh, the global leaders within our community. Um, you know, and the, our sort of avid AirPlay users are really, you know, fighting every day to try to keep on top of those points lists. So um, in addition to the prizes, you know, the, the, the points and status in the community are obviously very important. And to be honest with you, a lot of people really like to use this to either, you know, play along with a friend or, or make a new friend, right? I mean, watching TV by yourself isn't necessarily the best experience for everybody, right? So, you know, while you're watching, why not uh, connect with some other people out there that like the same TV show? Well, frankly, a lot of people watch TV for the company, so I think, you know, that makes perfect sense. Take it yeah. to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And have absolutely. it become a social experience. Yeah, what we found with our user base, too, is that, you know, what most of them end up actually watching more TV, um, you know, which we found to be pretty interesting, you know, that, that it actually gets people to say, you know, if I'm a, I'm a football fan, I might watch a football game longer, you know, because I'm more engaged with other users, or I might watch more games. You know, that's the types of things that we've seen. We've actually seen people watch shows that they don't normally watch um, in order to continue playing airplay. So, um, so far, Putting so good. the cart Those before the horse, so to speak. Putting, yeah, we don't plan to put the cart before the horse, but sometimes it actually happens. Well, that's that's the good, that's the... 
nothing wrong with that. You know, unintended, <laughs> positive unintended consequences. I'm sure it makes the networks and you know makes the the shows happy to hear about that. Certainly. Uh, certainly. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously the, they have a, a primary objective, which is getting more people to watch. You know, and and um, you know, we so we love to be able to say, hey, look, people are watching more because of this, um, and it, it's certainly part of the value that we bring to uh, to sort of the TV ecosystem, if you will. Right now, do they help you promote? Do they? Do they? Um, absolutely. So yes, I mean CBS has been fantastic. They've been um, promoting on air um, to text in to get the game, um, and we've done numerous other promotions like that with uh, with, with broadcasters and other partners um, to really sort of get people more engaged. So, um, and I think one of the things we're seeing is as we grow um, and, and as we get more users and as we add more content and, and all these other things, I think we're seeing more and more of that. Um, so, you know, the idea of being able to interact along with television isn't necessarily a brand new idea. You know, we think the way that we do it is compelling, and we think our games are really compelling. And I think, as, like I said, as we um, get more and more momentum, I think our partnerships in the uh, broadcast space are getting stronger. Sure. Well, that only makes sense. Well, I'm glad to hear all that. Um, as, as usual, while we're chatting away, time flies, and <laughs> yep. we, we have to move on to uh, to our uh, our final guest. Boy, tonight's gone really fast. I was concerned because I haven't run the board by myself before, but <laughs> it's, it's going A-OK. So thanks, Chris. I'm glad to hear things are going well, and uh, it's interesting that you guys are, are tapping into not just sporting events. I'm sure that's that's helpful to have a, you know, a different... Uh, Different layers, so you're not only dealing with sports fan and uh, fans. And um, I'm glad things are going well for you guys. I think it's a really good idea. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Okay. Well, we'll talk to you again. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Up next, we have uh, a very distinguished guest, Ralph Peters. I've been reading him since I started blogging, uh, which was uh, sort of in response to 9/11. I, like a lot of people, I think, started really paying attention to. Uh, well, the, the the nuts and bolts of our uh, foreign policy and what's going on with the military and whatnot. So I've read many, many a column by Ralph Peters. And Ralph Peters has been a lifelong traveler in and out of uniform with experience in 70 countries on six continents. And his new book is Looking for Trouble, Adventures in a Broken World. Welcome, Ralph Peters. Hey, great to speak to you, but I have to ask you a question. You said you were you, you started reading my stuff when you started paying more attention to the nuts and bolts, am I a nut or a bolt? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I, th- I think ideally you want to hyphenate the term, you know, so it's just one term and you're not breaking it up into its component parts. Uh, but, uh, no, you're, you're, you're an expert is what you are. Uh, <laughs> but that, that's funny. That's a good question. <laughs> so how are you this evening? Well, you know, after a, a really pleasant bottle of wine with some heirloom tomatoes and prosciutto and mozzarella, hey, life in the USA is pretty good. Wow. That sounds like Lisa's kind of evening, huh, Lisa? That sounds like a pretty good meal to me. Yeah, the bread, bread was disappointing, but hey, we'll make allowances for that. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you got the rest of it going there. You had, you had the... Hey, let, let me tell you, you know, after having spent 22 years of my life in the military, people don't understand that... You know, the military and all you know the bad rations over the years, it makes you appreciate every single bite of good food that you'll ever get. I can imagine. I I, I I I haven't had the experience myself. I wouldn't, you know, even pretend to I'm the Hey food's better now though. Our troops are better fed now than they ever were. I have that impression. I you know, for as for as much 
for the, for the rap that the military has been getting, um, you know, a lot of it seems to be somewhat, if not largely, partisan in terms of, you know, who's ever out of power uh, is going to blame the sure. whatever, whatever the perceived well, you know, ne- negatives are. You know, you know, as far as the army, I was an army guy. And the, the army was formed in 1775, a year before we were a country, and the army endures. You know, Democratic administrations, Republican administrations. Yeah, progressives, you take your pick. Uh, we just go on and do our duty. And uh, But I, I do have to say that although our, our troops work harder today than they have in, in a very long time, they're, they're better cared for. I mean, I, I've seen them in Iraq and elsewhere. And uh, the, the, the food is good. The care is good. It'll never be perfect because it's not a perfect world. But even the medical care compared to what I had as a private in 1976 uh, it's just phenomenal now. So, the, the, you know, we always hear about the waste in government, but we don't hear about the tax dollars well spent. You know, it's always a it's a gotcha world, and again, it's bipartisan. You know, depending on what the issue is and who's picking on who. But but I honestly believe that um, when it comes to the army and marines specifically, uh, the taxpayer gets very good value. Now that doesn't mean that everything we send our soldiers and marines to do is necessarily wise. But but nonetheless, uh, the institutions themselves, there are very few bargains the taxpayer gets. The National Park Service, uh, the Coast Guard, and I'd say certainly the Marine Corps. Interesting, very interesting. Uh, I don't think you'd have too many people disagreeing with you these days. I think I think one of the things that that has happened, you know, kind of post 9/11, that being such a watershed, I think it really did focus. Yeah, I, I probably use my own experience a little too much here, but. Uh, using my own experience is when I really did kind of focus in um, for the first time beyond the theoretical. I had been a, a poli sci and, and philosophy, oddly, major in college. And so, of course, I had. Well, you know, which philosopher did you uh, concentrate on? Well, I, I'm, I'm really. I still go back to, to Plato, which really means Socrates. I, I very much like the, um, the idea of ideals. I don't believe literally probably uh in in actual you know ideals as existing entities but i think um the fact that we have a conception of what the ideal or the perfect form is of of uh, of everything of of various things and of thoughts and of of people and and whatnot i i think that's powerful and i i love the cave i always come back to the cave analogy that you know that our world is is a, is a shadow of of a shadow, and I just have a, a, a strong intuitive sense, nothing you know beyond that, just a really deep personal intuitive sense that there's a lot of truth to that. That that there is you know there are underlying things that are more real, um, and again whether they exist you know in, in the sense of that we talk about when we talk about things existing, I, I don't know, but I think at least in a psychological in a um, uh, oh a Jungian sense in terms of of the collective subconscious, and I'm I'm definitely a a, a Jungian versus uh, versus that other guy. Um, no, I, I believe very strongly in in the collective subconscious and and the that there are realities that transcend the individual. Um, well, we, we certainly you know, you know that's another show I guess, but you know, the the collective subconscious and the way it manifests itself in mass movements and mobs is a, is worthy of study uh, certainly in the 21st century with the phenomena we see but you know to me the philosopher's crime is encouraging people to seek perfection well, human, human human beings are by their nature imperfect 
human societies are imperfect. We can strive for a more perfect union, but not a perfect union. And when you strive, you know, for Plato's Republic or Utopia or the, the communist ideal, I mean, you're on the road to Srebrenica and Auschwitz. And I'm, I'm wary of any philosophical system that, that supposes that there is an ideal that humanity can reach. Because as soon as you say humanity can, humanity can reach an ideal, the next step is to try to force humanity to reach that ideal. So I think there's a lot to be said uh, for, for livable mediocrity. <laughs> I, I agree. And I should also hasten to add that in my, in my personal philosophy and, and, and that which, you know, fortunately, I think uh, the, uh, the Western world and the, certainly the United States is built upon is ultimately, you know, the individual is sacrosanct. It does come down to the individual. Yeah, and, I'm a John Stuart Mill guy. Um, you know, the uh, maximum right the individual, as long as the individual does not uh, impinge upon the rights of others and the well-being of others. But you know, for me, you know, the, the book we're ostensibly supposed to be talking about, my new book, the Looking yes, for Trouble. Yes, we should talk about that book. Well, it actually ties in very directly to this. I mean, in Looking for Trouble, I really chronicle the the, the events overseas, the experiences in the in uniform. And even before I was in the military, just traveling, uh, they, they shaped my worldview. I mean, my view is you know, people can disagree with them, and, uh, and they're welcome to, but they're shaped not by theoretical knowledge, but by firsthand experience. And the book's really about traveling in the Balkans, Burma, the dying Soviet Union, the Andean Ridge, uh, Laos, Pakistan. And in all the socialist and communist countries I visited, uh, I mean, they just... The tragedies I saw, the individual human tragedies, the human stories that the book talks about, um, not, you know, not tea with the ambassador and the great sweep of history, but the human tragedies that I witnessed really made me allergic to any system that attempts to uh, perfect humankind. And uh, I always like to say that uh, I learned as a backpacking student in the early 70s uh, in Yugoslavia that the problem with dialectical materialism is that the dialectic never delivered the material. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> that that is great. I I I, I do fe- I do see as a I'm not a historian certainly, but but um, someone who you know I'm interested in that. I I do see the Hegelian dialectic working though. That does make sense to me. I do see the you know in essence the the human mm-hmm. um, analog of jet propulsion. You know you have reaction and reaction and then some form of synthesis. Sure. synthesis. Well, I, I think the, the Hegelian dialectic works in, in, in many senses, and really it goes a long way to conceptualizing what we see around the world, and whether it's Kenya or Rwanda or Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan. And that's um, the, the thesis was European imperialism. The antithesis is independence. And now we're working toward a synthesis because we're, we're seeing societies that European imperialism thrust out of, forced out of balance out of their organic balance, if you will. Um, not that the organic balance was always kind. Contrary to Neil Young, the Aztecs weren't flower children. Yeah. But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, the world is seeking to, to come back after the imperial era to a natural balance. But the other thing about Hegel that I think really tells us a, a great deal uh, about humanity, whether you're dealing with a homeless person in the street or with an entire, the culture of Middle Eastern Islam, is a Hegelian concept of honor kennel. Uh, you know, it's a German word, but what it basically means is 
all human beings want recognition. We want to be recognized. We want to be we don't want to be passed by as if we're invisible. And uh, in the Middle East today, people are so humiliated by their own self-wrought failures that they're just desperate for acknowledgement that they that they exist and have some validity. And we're, we're sort of veering off into the metaphysical depths there. Uh, let me assure your listeners that the, the new book, Looking for Trouble, is much more visceral down to earth. And if you don't laugh out loud at me once per chapter, then you, uh, then you, then the book's failed. But I, I really feel that sometimes, you know, I live outside of Washington. I, I dip in and out of Washington. I've worked in Washington, in the Pentagon, in the executive office of the president. And to me, one of the cardinal failings of Washington is that people forget how to laugh at themselves. Um, you know, the you know, when you read the typical Washington biography, it's or autobiography or memoir, it's how, gee, you know, I was perfect and everybody else was wrong, and if it only listened to me, everything would have been great. Well, in the real world, none of us are right all the time. We all make mistakes, and I think the first step toward being a, a, a fully rounded human being is the ability to admit your mistakes and laugh at them. Can't laugh at yourself. Oh, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, if uh, <laughs> I spend more time laughing at myself than than about anything else, you know, because uh, you know, like you say, the 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 pretensions and the hubris. I mean, there's nothing that that, that better remedies those those great ills of people who are talented and people who are accomplished and people who you know who are who are. Uh, perfectly you know who are exemplars but but so often they seem to lack the ability to laugh at themselves and to realize hey i'm just a person and sure you know i i'm 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 doing my best and i'm trying to shoulder my responsibilities and make the world a better place and on and on but (laughs) but i am i am fallible at that you know and uh yeah i mean that's something that i i find uh bush Still, even out to this day, you know, a, a pretty likable guy in a lot of ways. But it, it really does bother me that he truly seems to view not himself personally, but his um, his his public life, his his uh, his officialdom as as flawless. I mean, how can the guy say I, I I can't think of any mistakes, anything that I would like to take back? That's that really rubbed me, and I think an awful lot of people the wrong way. People who are kind of predisposed to to view him favorably. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree with you. And on a tangential note, one thing that amazes me is uh, the similarities in in that respect between Senator Obama and George Bush. I mean, Senator Obama, like all human beings, has been wrong about some things. And boy, you can't get him to admit it. I mean, look, he was wrong about the surge. The surge worked. I've been to Iraq. I've seen it. Hands down, it worked. No argument. And his twisting and turning and machinations and gyrations to to somehow make the midterm elections responsible for all the positive changes in Iraq are, are just uh, disingenuous to the point of dishonesty. And what worries me is I wonder if we're now breeding a new generation of politicians, whether George W. Bush or Barack Obama, who, who see themselves as infallible, who see themselves as a, above the common herd. Um, I, I hope, hope not, but God knows. I mean, democracy functions on compromise. Look, sometimes conservatives are right. Sometimes the, the, the liberals are right. And usually the answer is somewhere in the middle. But if we you know, inaugurate a doctrine of 
presidential infallibility, we are in deep chemistry, as I'd say in the Army. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone makes mistakes, and those mistakes are often amplified, you know, when when you have a bureaucracy to then carry them out. And, you know, every one of those bureaucrats is a person, and every one of those military people is a person, and people are fallible, and things do get messed up. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We... I, I'm, I'm sure that deep down, you know, and on a personal level, those people, uh, you know, Bush, Obama, whomever, I, I, I'm sure they do not see themselves as infallible, and, and I'm sure that they're, you know, perfectly charming. But uh, perhaps they feel that they have to represent some sort of um, ideal or some point of view, and that that point of view can never be wrong. And But I agree with you that that's, well, that's dangerous. You know, I, I think the problem is that we have a political class now people who are professional politicians all their lives on both sides of the aisle, and they really are not in touch with the American people. Look, the American people are very forgiving. If a president sincerely goes to the American people and says, look, I got this one wrong. I'm going to do my best to fix it. But, yeah, I admit I made a mistake. I think his, his, that president's poll ratings would go up. And I think one of the reasons Bush polls so low now is the idea that, you know, he's so stubborn he won't ever admit that he's wrong. And I also think the reason Senator Obama's lead has been dropping to, you know, parity uh, is that he'll never admit he's wrong. The American people are commonsensical. They are not stupid, but they are forgiving. But I I think integrity has a place uh, in politics, even now, believe it or not. And I really think that the American people would respond well to a president willing to admit admit that he or she is human. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree. I think you're right. Americans love comebacks. And in a sense, admitting you're wrong, admitting you made a mistake, asking forgiveness, saying, you know, asking for input on, on, on how to move forward, and saying you don't have all the answers, that's kind of a mini, you know, an enactment of, of the comeback tale. And Americans love comebacks. I mean, yeah, you know. It, you bet. It's been going on throughout our history. Well, hey, we are past the 10 o'clock hour. Uh, boy, I, when we veered off into philosophy, I thought, wow, we, hey, that, I, I could okay. easily talk to this look, guy for about three look, hours. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, he, I'm he, supposed to be selling books, but I'd much rather just have a good conversation. Gosh, me too, me too. And uh, this really is an excellent book. I read the fur about the first 30 pages. Uh, like always, I get these things late. and Oh, my sure. God, I'm talking to this guy. i got to go through this. But really fascinating stuff, and the reviews have been tremendous. And people say that this is kind of really the book that you were – that you were made to write, you know, as opposed to, I mean, th- this is you, and it's a travelogue, and it's your experiences. Yeah, and, and it's really a tribute, above all, to the people I served with out at the end of the world, where there'd be just one or two or three of us uh, in the middle of nowhere trying to do the best for our country with civil wars raging around us or refugee camps. And, and so I really do look at it as a tribute to the others. But, hey, look, I, I describe it as a beach read for smart people, Take your time, read the rest of it, enjoy it, and uh, and that's all any author can ask. Well, I certainly will, and it was absolutely a pleasure speaking with you. And like I say, I really am a big fan. I've been been reading you quite regularly since uh, well since about nine eleven, like I said. And you you really have a lot of uh, you're filled with common sense uh, as well as you're extremely erudite person and have all these experiences, but. But you're also, you know, very grounded, very common sense guy. You're, you, you seem to find the, the middle ground, and and uh, and you are not, 
uh, you know, an ideologue by any means. So, sure, and uh, tell I, Lisa I look just like George Clooney. Oh, you do. I, 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 I know that. You know. I'm, I'm hey, well, let's winning. talk again. All right. Thanks, Ralph. Okay, bye. Bye, bye. Well, that was something. Wow. Lisa. That philosophy stuff goes so far over my head. Now, have you had any philosophy background? You know, I took like philosophy 101 when I was a freshman in college, and I really hated it for some reason. Really? That surprises yeah. me. Yeah, I think a lot depends on the teacher because I same with me, I had no intention of getting into it. I just, you know, it was it was one of several requirements and I thought it seemed somewhat interesting cuz as you know, I like to blab and always have and uh I like ideas and ideas have interested me. So I thought, you know, what, what do I have to lose? So I took the the 101 and I had a really good teacher for it and it was really who really brought it to life and really helped helped me see how this whole history of of human thought how that, you know, factors into and influences our lives, you know, right here and now, day by day. And so I, I really became um, engaged because of that. In fact, that really was my favorite philosophy class, that the broad-based, the survey class, you know, where you ha- get the yeah. overview and get the main points. But I, I absolutely can see that it would, you know, could turn people off if the teacher isn't very good, if the materials aren't too, you know, that are selected. Because obviously you can have a lot of really heavy stuff that that's that's hard to slog through. But if you get kind of down to the essence of it and and get the the highlights of the best stuff, it's it um, you know it's it's essentially a history of of human thought, or at least Western human thought. And, well, and I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's really, you know, the, the basis for so much of what we are and what we know. And I think you're right. I think I did have a really crappy teacher the first time around, which is why I hated it. And I would probably get way more out of it now than I did when I was. Oh, I, I am absolutely certain that you would, yeah. Because, and, you know, you know, it's one of those things, maybe if I had the time to, go back and take a class just for fun, that might be something I'd even consider doing. Well, another way to do it is there There are a number of really good, you know, general interest written for the the layman, whatever that means, the, the intelligent um, layman, um, you know, just, just sur- philosophical survey books, and they just boil yeah. it down to the basics. And, you know, that's that's probably the route I would take. Um I have a whole. Do you have anything book. you recommend? Well, I'm I'm looking right now. I actually, I moved a bunch of them over to to the house. I've, I I kind of kept all my philosophy books uh, just because it did interest me, and I I find I refer to them. I, I honestly, I, although it sounds odd, and I, I hope I don't come across as pretentious in in my writing. Although I'm sure sometimes I do, but. Um, you know the the philosophy background is probably I've used more in my writing and, and not writing about philosophy by any means, just kind of as a an underpinning of my writing than anything else. Uh, you know than any other background that I had. Well, there's a certainly a classic. Um, it's pretty out of date, but you know it's not, it's not like you need to worry about what's happened much in the last forty or fifty years in philosophy because basically it's all really technical stuff, you know, they just get more yeah. and more arcane, more and more mathematical, you know, kind of most of the 20th century uh, is is really un 
unfathomable to someone like me who is not a, a math person, you know. But anyway, the story of philosophy, which is just, just that, an overview, The Lives and Opinions of the World's Greatest Philosophers by Will Durant, D-U-R-A-N-T, is okay. really a classic. And that, that's from Plato to John Dewey. And it's it's pretty easy to read. I mean, it's not, you know, real easy to read, but it's not terribly long. And you can skip around. It's not like you got to sit there and, you know, read about every single philosopher. You can dip into it and see who interests you and who doesn't. That's a really nice overview. I ended up, just because I'm so interested in, you know, the arts, the popular arts and music and, and art and um, film and, and TV and all that, so on and so forth, uh, I got really into aesthetics, which is the study of, of uh, you know, what, of beauty technically, but mm-hmm. uh, but gets into you know what is art, what makes art, um, how how does art exist, and and there's a lot of real interesting books, and that's the stuff I have over at my house, so I don't have it in front of me to look at the titles, but there's actually pretty recently been some very interesting, well written, uh, even even humorous sort of looks at you know what makes art, and and in the context of talking about what makes art. They're giving you the philosophical underpinnings of aesthetics, and uh, you know. So, I, I, again, I don't have any titles in front of me, sadly, but there's some pretty recent stuff. You know, some some pretty thin books, nothing too overwhelming, where you get a nice history of aesthetics. And I think you'd be real interested in that. I think um, I would be too. That does sound very appealing. Yeah, just you know, as a and, critic. You know, it's the kind of conversation that you have with people, and obviously I'm usually having that conversation without having a lot of intellectual background in it. Right. It, it, it's, you know, I mean, it's fun to, to have that. And, and uh, I, you know, it's interesting, and I'm sure you've picked up on it. That there's, it's not unusual for some of these guests, especially authors, I suppose, more than anyone else, but, but not even only those. Uh, to want to talk about philosophy. That's not the first oh, yeah. time, you know, that it's come up. And yeah. and and uh, you know, they'll 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 poke and prod a little and see what you know or what you, you know what you remember and um you know, I I'm probably luckier than than if uh, than if I had just been a philosophy uh dual major uh you know, all those <laughs> all those years ago and then hadn't really done anything with it since, but the fact that I've been writing all along, it kind of forced me to to develop, you know, in some ways, my own kind of sense of the history of philosophy, my own take on it, and and how it applies to to my worldview, and so I have it a little more in my the forefront of my brain probably than than most people my age who you know who just took it in school because I really have seen it as as something that's very practical and it, it's a framework is what it is. It's a framework to hang ideas on. It's a framework to uh, hang theories on, and you know, to try to come up with an explanation of of uh, you know our our current culture and why things are the way they are, and uh, again, kind of focusing more on the pop culture side of things. Um, you know, w- w- why do certain things come to the fore and others do not, and why do some styles become popular? And you know, so so it does give you a really nice underpinning for for being a critic. Yes, and I don't think I've ever heard, a, a, well, I certainly never heard my philosophy teacher frame it as anything relevant. 
Oh yeah. Well, that's so what makes I, it. I really fun. love what you just what you just said about it because it. I, I've I always looked at it when I was in college as you know, oh God, I've got to take a requirement, and it's going to be philosophy, and why am I doing this? Yeah. You know, and you've you've really just sort of said why it probably ought to be a required course. Well, and and just to give you one more. Um, I was so late to get here today, tonight, because we're we are rehearsing for our uh, we we got the annual party next door on Saturday, and that's with the live band, and the guy next door is the bass player in the band, so we have to play like Don and I have to do like four or five songs, so we were over <laughs> rehearsing because man, you know, you really don't want to suck. It's just it's just too <laughs> embarrassing because you know all those friends and neighbors are there and you know you can tell looking at them if, if you did a very good job you know they're smiling and then they kind of drift off at you but uh yeah this will be about the third or fourth time we've done it and we, I mean, we definitely get better each time because you know i had a gap there of about 25 years where i didn't play much so it's been fun to get back into it but it's not it's harder than i thought it would be you know i used to be able to just kind of pick it up and play and sing, you know, strum the guitar and sing along, and, and and all was well. Now it takes a lot more effort. The last thing I wanted to say or, or, or note, I, I think you'd really like Jung. He's really interesting and very different um, in that while he's modern, and, and he, you know, was one of the founders of psychology, um, he's yeah. also kind of grounded in this older way of thinking where uh, you know, he's he's the guy who came up with the collective subconscious and the way these yep. things work uh, in society, and and so it's it's uh, I, I think um, you know I, I'm 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 not um, well I, I'm not as interested in in the nuts and bolts of psychoanalysis and all that um, that uh, you know I, I certainly I'm not a disbeliever or anything, but I, I think it, it's ultimately you know that everything comes down to sex and all that. I think that's kind of a reductionist worldview and and too narrow. And, uh, you know, whereas uh, he, Young, is much, much broader. And uh, so I'm I'm just looking at one. I'm sure there's any number of editions, but I'm looking at one called The Portable Young, which has an interesting intro uh, by Joseph Campbell, the myth guy. And, yeah, Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested in myths and, and, you know, the reality and where they come from and, and how they affect society and the interaction there. So uh, that makes it kind of explicit that, that Campbell gives the introduction. But, yeah, it's just called the port. This, this one's Viking, the Viking Portable Library Young. Uh, you know, it's I've had it for quite a while. I'm sure there's any number that, that would cover the same area. It's just, a you know, basically a sampler of of his stuff, but I think you'd really like him and be, find him really interesting and readable and, uh, um, you know, a, a good writer, which counts a lot, too, because <laughs> it if it's just ideas, then, you know, that gets old fast. Yeah, I, I actually, Jung is actually one of the, one of them that I'm, I am somewhat familiar with, only because I majored in psych when ah. I was in- so yeah, we did the whole Jung and Freud thing. Yeah, I'm I'm much but, less Freudian than I am Jungian. Um, I think he's more yeah. interesting, more yeah. m- more human. 
Detroit's had an amazing impact on so many things, and yet some of that stuff is kind of hard to buy. Yeah, of course. And and I'm not anti, you know, I don't reject his his uh, basic ideas, but I think he's narrower. I, I like, you know, I still like metaphysics, you know. Um, I don't mm-hmm. reject out-of-hand metaphysics. I think it's okay to look at the big picture, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of what's been going on now, um, so is very narrow, is very clinical, is very, you know, mathematical. And uh, that's what I'm least interested in. I'm, I'm much more the the humanist side of things. Well, very nice talking to you. I certainly enjoyed our little philosophical discussion here at the end. But uh, I best be on my way. Thanks so much for your help. Uh, I appreciate it, as always, but particularly tonight. Well, it's an interesting show tonight. Yeah, it really was. It was. And it went quickly. A lot of fun people. A lot of interesting people and uh, yeah i mean that's what's fun about it, is getting to talk to all these different people and you know get their story and their world view and be forced to do a little research on them so so that you know i at least learn a little bit along the way and yeah. then i learn a lot from talking to them of course but yeah it's it's fun well i will talk to you tomorrow i am sure or at least communicate and we will uh press on we have lots of big things going on can't really talk about it yet but we're getting close we're getting close to some real real big announcements and it's going to be something exciting times are at hand it it really is all right well thanks lisa have a great okay. evening and i will talk to you tomorrow and appreciate all you do as always okay good night eric Good night. Bye.